Chapter Eleven of the Jewel by Anton Chekhov, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. You look as though you were coming to arrest me," said von Koren, seeing Samoylenko coming in in his full dress uniform. I was passing by and thought, "Suppose I go in and pay my respects to zoology," said Samoylenko. Sitting down at the big table, knocked together by the zoologist himself out of plain boards. Good morning, Holy Father, he said to the deacon, who was sitting in the window copying something. I'll stay a minute and then run home to see about dinner. It's time. I'm not hindering you. Not in the least, answered the zoologist. Laying out over the table slips of paper covered with small writing, we are busy copying. Ah, oh my goodness, my goodness! Sighed Samolenko. He cautiously took up from the table a dusty book on which there was lying a dead, dried spider, and said, "Only fancy, though, some little green beetle is going about its business." When suddenly a monster like this swoops down upon it, I can fancy its terror. Yes, I suppose so. Is poison given it to protect it from its enemies? Yes, to protect it and enable it to attack. To be sure, to be sure. And everything in nature, my dear fellows, is consistent, and can be explained. Sighed Samoylenko. Only I tell you what I don't understand. You're a man of very great intellect, so explain it to me, please. There are, you know, little beasts, no bigger than rats, rather handsome to look at, but nasty and immoral in the extreme. Let me tell you. Suppose such a little beast is running in the woods. He sees a bird. He catches it and devours it. He goes on and sees in the grass a nest of eggs. He does not want to eat them. He is not hungry, but yet he tastes one egg and scatters the others out of the nest with his paw. Then he meets a frog and begins to play with it. When he has tormented the frog. He goes on licking himself and meets a beetle. He crushes the beetle with his paw, and so he spoils and destroys everything on his way. He creeps into other beasts' holes, tears up the ant hills, cracks the snail's shell. If he meets a rat, he fights with it. If he meets a snake or a mouse, he must strangle it. And so the whole day long, come, tell me, what is the use of a beast like that? Why was he created? I don't know what animal you are talking of," said von Koren. Most likely one of the insectivora. Well, he got hold of the bird because it was incautious. He broke the nest of eggs because the bird was not skilful. Had made the nest badly, and did not know how to conceal it. The frog probably had some defect in its colouring, or he would not have seen it. 
and so on. Your little beast only destroys the weak, the unskillful, the careless. In fact, those who have defects which nature does not think fit to hand on to posterity. Only the cleverer, the stronger, the more careful and developed survive. And so your little beast, without suspecting it, is serving the great ends of perfecting creation. Yes, yes, yes. By the way, brother, said Samolenko carelessly, lend me a hundred roubles. Very good. There are some very interesting types among the insectivorous mammals. For instance, the mole is said to be useful because he devours noxious insects. There is a story that some German sent William I a fur coat made of moleskins, and the emperor ordered him to be reproved for having destroyed so great a number of useful animals. And yet the mole is not a bit less cruel than your little beast, and is very mischievous besides, as he spoils meadows terribly. Von Koren opened a box and took out a hundred-rouble note. The mole has a powerful thorax, just like the bat, he went on, shutting the box. The bones and muscles are tremendously developed. The mouth is extraordinarily powerfully furnished. If it had the proportions of an elephant, it would be an all-destructive, invincible animal. It is interesting, when two moles meet underground, they begin at once, as though by agreement, digging a little platform. They need the platform in order to have a battle more conveniently. When they have made it, they enter upon a ferocious struggle, and fight till the weaker one falls. Take the hundred roubles, said von Korn, dropping his voice, but only on condition that you're not borrowing it for Levski. And if it were for Levski, cried Samolenko, flaring up, what is that to you? I can't give it to you for Leevsky. I know you like lending people money. You would give it to Kerim, the brigand, if he were to ask you. But, excuse me, I can't assist you in that direction. Yes, it is for Leevsky I'm asking it, said Samoylenko, standing up and waving his right arm. Yes, for Leevsky, and no one, fiend or devil, has a right to dictate to me how to dispose of my own money. It doesn't suit you to lend it me, no? The deacon began laughing. Don't get excited, but be reasonable, said the zoologist. To shower benefits on Mr. Levski is, to my thinking, as senseless as to water weeds or to feed locusts. To my thinking, it is our duty to help our neighbours cried Samoylenko. In that case, help that hungry Turk who is lying under the fence. He is a workman, and more useful and indispensable than your Laevsky. Give him that hundred-rouble note, or subscribe a hundred roubles to my expedition. Will you give me the money or not? I ask you. Tell me openly, what does he want money for? It's not a secret. He wants to go to Petersburg on Saturday. So, that is it, von Korn drawled out, 
Aha! We understand. And is she going with him? Or how is it to be? She's staying here for the time. He'll arrange his affairs in Petersburg and send her the money, and then she'll go. That's smart, said the zoologist, and he gave a short tenor laugh. Smart, well planned. He went rapidly up to Samolenko, and standing face to face with him, and looking him in the eyes, asked, Tell me now, honestly, is he tired of her? Yes, tell me, is he tired of her? Yes. Yes, Samolenko articulated, beginning to perspire. How repulsive it is, said von Korn, and from his face it could be seen that he felt repulsion. One of two things, Alexander Davidich. Either you are in the plot with him, or, excuse my saying so, you are a simpleton. Surely you must see that he is taking you in, like a child, in the most shameless way. Why, it's as clear as day that he wants to get rid of her and abandon her here. She'll be left a burden on you. It is as clear as day that you will have to send her to Petersburg at your expense. Surely your fine friend can't have so blinded you by his dazzling qualities that you can't see the simplest thing. That's all supposition, said Samolenko, sitting down. Supposition? But why is he going alone, instead of taking her with him? And ask him why he doesn't send her off first, the sly beast. Overcome with sudden doubts and suspicions about his friend, Samoylenko weakened and took a humbler tone. But it's impossible, he said, recalling the night Leevsky had spent at his house. He is so unhappy. What of that? Thieves and incendiaries are unhappy too. Even supposing you are right, said Samoylenko, hesitating, let us admit it. Still, he's a young man in a strange place, a student. We have been students too, and there is no one but us to come to his assistance. To help him to do abominable things, because he and you, at different times, have been at universities, and neither of you did anything there. What nonsense! Stop, let us talk it over coolly. I imagine it will be possible to make some arrangement, Samoylenko reflected, twiddling his fingers. I'll give him the money, you see, but make him promise, on his honour, that within a week he'll send Adjezda Fardrovna the money for the journey. And he'll give you his word of honour. In fact, he'll shed tears, and believe in it himself. But what's his word of honour worth? He won't keep it. And when, in a year or two, you meet him on the Nevsky Prospect, with a new mistress on his arm, he'll excuse himself, on the ground that he has been crippled by civilization and that he is made after the pattern of Rudin. Drop him, for God's sake. Keep away from the filth. Don't stir it up with both hands. Samolenko thought for a minute, and said resolutely, But I shall give him the money all the same. As you please, 
I can't bring myself to refuse a man simply on an assumption. Very fine, too. You can kiss him if you like. Give me the hundred roubles, then, Samolenko asked timidly. I won't. A silence followed. Samolenko was quite crushed. His face wore a guilty, abashed, an ingratiating expression, and it was strange to see this pitiful, childish, shame-faced countenance on a huge man wearing epaulets and orders of merit. The bishop here goes the round of his diocese on horseback, instead of in a carriage, said the deacon, laying down his pen. It's extremely touching to see him sit on his horse. His simplicity and humility are full of biblical grandeur. Is he a good man? asked von Korn, who was glad to change the conversation. Of course, if he hadn't been a good man, do you suppose he would have been consecrated a bishop? Among the bishops are to be found good and gifted men, said von Korn. The only drawback is that some of them have the weakness to imagine themselves statesmen. One busies himself with russification, another criticizes the sciences. That's not their business. They had much better look into their consistory a little. A layman cannot judge of bishops. Why so, deacon? A bishop is a man just the same as you or I? The same, but not the same. The deacon was offended and took up his pen. If you had been the same, the divine grace would have rested upon you, and you would have been bishop yourself. And since you are not bishop, it follows you are not the same. Don't talk nonsense, deacon, said Samoylenko dejectedly. Listen to what I suggest, he said, turning to von Korn. Don't give me that hundred roubles. You'll be having your dinners with me for three months before the winter. So let me have the money beforehand for three months. I won't. Samoylenko blinked and turned crimson. He mechanically drew towards him the book with the spider on it, and looked at it. Then he got up and took his hat. Von Koren felt sorry for him. "'What it is to have to live and do with people like this,' said the zoologist, and he kicked a paper into the corner with indignation. "'You must understand that this is not kindness.' It is not love, but cowardice, slackness, poison. What's gained by reason is lost by your flabby, good-for-nothing hearts. When I was ill with typhoid as a schoolboy, my aunt, in her sympathy, gave me pickled mushrooms to eat, and I very nearly died. You, and my aunt too, must understand that love for man is not to be found in the heart or the stomach, or the bowels, but here. Von Korn slapped himself on the forehead. Take it, he said, and thrust a hundred-rouble note into his hand. You've no need to be angry, Kolya, said Samoylenko mildly, folding up the note. I quite understand you, but you must put yourself in my place. You're an old woman, that's what you are. 
the deacon burst out laughing. "'Hear my last request, Alexander Davidich,' said von Korn hotly. "'When you give that scoundrel the money, make it a condition that he takes his lady with him, or sends her on ahead, and don't give it him without. There's no need to stand on ceremony with him. Tell him so, or, if you don't, I give you my word I'll go to his office and kick him downstairs, and I'll break off all acquaintance with you. So you'd better know it. Well, to go with her or send her on beforehand will be more convenient for him, said Samolenko. He'll be delighted indeed. Well, good-bye. He said good-bye affectionately and went out, but before shutting the door after him, he looked round at von Koren, and with a ferocious face said, It's the Germans who have ruined you, brother. Yes, the Germans. End of chapter 11